All right, are you guys ready for this conversation? <laughs> what a way to begin a uh, podcast slash YouTube uh, conversation. Today, I'm starting a series called The Diversity of Trans. Um, I'm going to have six different guests on the show for this series. And um, I, one of my goals is to highlight the diversity of trans perspectives and experiences so that um, people who are not either trans or don't identify as trans or are not really part of this broader conversation can understand that there is a great deal of diversity within this conversation. Uh, this series also surrounds the, the launch of my book, Embodied, uh, Transgender Identities of Church and What the Bible Has to Say, which comes out on February first. So I'm going to do uh, a few shows before the launch, one show on the day of the launch, a few shows after the launch of the book. So I encourage you to go check out my book, Embodied, um, where books are sold. Basically, yeah, go to Amazon and you can check it out and order it. Um, it's basically a, a, an overview of the trans conversation from a Christian perspective. There's a lot of science, a lot of theology, a lot of ethics, a lot of um, ontology uh, in the book and a ton of relationships that are woven throughout the book embodied. So check it out if you're interested in engaging a Christian perspective on this conversation. On the show today, we're going to kick things off with Miranda Yardley. Miranda does not fit any of your categories. Miranda identifies as uh, transsexual. Um, that's her preferred term, not transgender. And she explains why a little bit um, in this episode. Miranda is incredibly sharp, incredibly provocative. Um, in fact, uh, Miranda introduced herself to me as the world's most hated transsexual. And, and I think when she says that, she means hated by those who would be on, I would assume, the far left. Uh, Miranda is a transsexual who is very critical of a trans activist ideology, and that's largely what this show is all about. Uh, Miranda's perspective is one perspective, and we're going to highlight various other perspectives that might differ from Miranda, um, uh, as you'll see if you keep listening to the series. And Miranda's actually really excited about that. Miranda is an atheist who loves churches. <laughs> She's a transsexual who's very critical of um, a transgender ideology. But anyway, without further ado, please welcome to the show the one and only Miranda Yardley. Our conversation uh, just from my audience i would I, I i typically talk offline with people for a little bit and hit record but um miranda you were <laughs> you, you started our offline conversation saying as an atheist i obviously have a great love for old churches and i'm like whoa whoa whoa, whoa. <laughs> so can you what how does that work what do you mean as an atheist you have a great love for old churches that's a very fascinating well, way to introduce yourself <laughs> I, I, I think most atheists love a, love a good church <laughs> um, because they, I mean, you know, churches are very historic places. They are, you know, they are often built by the people who lived in an area and, you know, built with blood and sweat and tears. And with all of that comes a load of history. And as I was explaining, the place that I live is uh, just outside a place called Southend-on-Sea. I live in a place called Lee-on-Sea, and it is in the Thames estuary. 
um, and the history of this this area is it's all intertwined with a need to defend London from either the Spanish or the French or the Germans or the Dutch or some other group of marauders um, and there are histories of you know there are rich histories of piracy and smuggling because of course there's you know it's it's on the English Channel and often you know the, you've got the English Channel meeting the North Sea and it's you know it's just that type of area that attracts you know ruthless pirates and smugglers yeah. and, you so know, is it strict, and sort of... is it strictly because of the historical significance of old churches or is there something mysteriously I don't know what term to even use spiritual transcendent that is interesting for somebody particularly who would be an, an atheist or if that makes sense. I think um, one of the great things about old churches is, of course, that they are they usually very quiet. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, you go into a church, it's very quiet. And um, or, or I, I love peace and quiet. I'm, I'm, I love being in the quiet. I love. You know, I'm happy to sit at home reading a book in a, a tranquil environment and just like, you know, just have yeah. quality time yeah. and just, you know, just enjoy. I, I love my own company. Um, you know, I'm, I, I don't need continually need people to affirm my existence or make sure that I'm OK or anything. I just like, you know, like my own company. I like interesting things. Churches are interesting things yeah. because they are, you know, often in this country we get a lot of churches with stained glass windows and ornate carvings. I was yeah. mentioning to you the the church in Pegglesham, which is, you know, is, is, is medieval. It's got these amazing uh, primitive carvings on the floor of skulls and crossbones. And, wow. you know, it's... I stuff like that really interesting and yeah. uh, you know it's, it's quite cool to do that um, and this this church is in um, a village called Pagelsham which is it's very remote um, it's there's probably a hundred people that live there and it, it's remote by English standards it's probably six kilometers from the nearest settlement to, you know the nearest decent sized settlement um, and you know to the north you've got uh to the north you've got um various tributaries of other rivers and the north sea to the east you've got the north sea to the south um there's not an awful lot yeah, <laughs> you <yeah>. know <laughs> uh, it's it's just quite and you know it's, yeah. and it's 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 remote and it's it's actually quite nice being out there because it's this part of essex is all very flat you get all this big sky and yeah. it's it's just really nice way to spend an afternoon yeah. exploring somewhere like that and just yeah. being at one with, with yourself. <laughs> well, let's, uh, for, for my audience, I mean, I would say most of my audience, um, I'm largely a Christian audience. Um, maybe half, maybe probably more than half would say they're, um, of an, of a kind of evangelical, which when I hear, t um, atheists, describe what an evangelical is i would say oftentimes it is more describing a, f a fundamentalist evangelical my audience is not going to resonate with the fundamentalist brand of evangelical for the most part they're not going to resonate with that they would be more of a kind of just mainstream christian audience but i, I would say i'll only say that because most of them might not know your name or 
um, your writing. So why don't you give us a bit of a biography of yourself <laughs> and, and how you yeah. became interested in, in, a, in a, if I can say it, a very interesting voice in the broader trans conversation? Well, um, I, um, I often describe myself as being the world's most hated transsexual. And I, I don't think that I, I'm, I think Debbie Hayton is making a good attempt to <laughs> usurp that particular throne. Um, but I, I don't think that, um, I, don't, I don't think Debbie's quite there yet. Got, got a bit, a little bit further to go. Um, I, I, by my nature, I like to be, uh, you know, I like, to, I'm, I'm interested in things. I like to be, uh, I like to think I've got a sense of self-awareness and, um, uh, I got into this whole thing maybe, gosh, seven years ago, maybe. Okay. Might be, might be a bit longer, might be a bit less time ago. Uh, I'd read something online about how awful uh, these these women were feminists, radical feminists, about how awful they were to trans people, and that the lives of trans people were being threatened and uh, were put, you know, you know that that we as a group of people were being ostracised and subjected to torrents of abuse and um, hate and um, all sorts of allegations of being attempts to keep us out of public life and you know all these dreadful things these women were supposed to be doing so what I did was I went onto Twitter and decided to look up some of the names of these women who were reputed to be uh, you know were reputed to be evil awful um, individuals and I checked out their Twitter accounts and saw that they were um, having conversations with people who were um, who were claiming to be trans and they were saying you know they, they were being a bit um, you know taunting them by saying have a good day sir and um, <laughs> you know and, and um, emphasizing the uh, the the, the uh, fundamental role of uh, one's biology in dictating whether or not one is a man or a woman and I, and I looked at what the women were saying and I thought well okay, I'm not seeing many many death threats here or anything like that but well being a bit mean to the poor trannies and what I then you know I drilled down into a th few threads and then I saw what it was that these trans people who were not just kids but who were adults, who were adults who were known trans activists and known campaigners for the for, for what they considered to be the rights of trans people. I looked at what these people, these, these these trans people, these tr invariably trans women, were saying to women, and I could not believe that the utter misogyny and the hate and the the utter intolerance and the lack of empathy that I saw mm. with women and uh, I, I found it I found it absolutely repugnant that this group of people who were there who were who were supposed to be on some level part of my own social group 
whose contempt, not just for women, but for themselves, was such that they would go on, you know, that essentially they were, spend, that they, they were and continue to spend their entire lives trolling women, baiting women. I would still see it today. It's, a, you know, the same culprits that I saw then, I see them there, I see them now, using the same tired old arguments, banging their same old drum of saying the same old thing and demonstrating in spite of their many years of having a lift as a woman, their utter callous lack of empathy for women. Wow. Um, can you unpack that a little? Like, wh where does that come from? And I, and I assume when you're talking about um, the trans activists who were berating gender critical feminists, radical feminists, um, that these were... Any woman really who disagrees with them, really. I mean, that's, okay. that's the way I read it. Um, there's this, this um, word that's been banded around for, for years, this word TERF, which is supposed to be trans-exclusion radical feminist, and it's glued to anybody as being a, anybody who disagrees with transgender ideology is called a radical feminist. Um, I, I don't think there are many people who are being called TERFs who are actually radical feminists in the sense of people who, you know, who, who deconstructs the, um, the, the, the way that the reproduction role of women is instrumentalized as a tool of oppression and, you know, who, who campaign for, you know, for, for women's support groups and women's, women's centers and, you know, groups like that. I don't think that many of the people who are being branded as being TERFs are the sort of people doing the work that radical feminists uh, have historically done. Uh, you know, like, for example, the women's groups behind uh, things like the Vancouver Rape Relief Centre or the anti-prostitution campaigning that Julie Bindel does or, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, the writing and the, um, the, the writing and activism and sheer uh, insistence that women work hard on them, you know, work, work hard on themselves and their ideas that Andrea Dworkin did. You know, it's not these type of women who have been called radical feminists, or not these type of people have been called radical feminists. It's, radical feminism is just being demonised. The idea that these are women who are feminists are, you know, these uppity women are is that is that is what is being used yeah. against women essentially. Uh, what what they're saying is that women's groups that exist for women are and um, are a pejorative and just tells you everything you need to know about the way that transgenderism and transgender activists yeah. see see women and women's groups. Yeah, yeah. I, in my, I think some of my audience might be familiar with that, but others might not. You know, yeah, turf, mm. trans exclusionary radical feminists. It it is a slur that people who are against the uh, their what they're talking about of use of the, I think gender critical feminist is the ones is the phrase that they would use of themselves, even radical mm. feminism. They would say, we're not being radical. We're just being consistent. I think is what they would say. Um, gender critical feminist. Um, and so within even in, even from my audience who majority might be evangelical, you know, we're very used to liberals and conservatives, you know, dividing across the line on all these issues or whatever. And I tell them, you know, when it comes mm. to, the broader trans conversation, there are no liberals and conservatives. It's one big hot mess. And you have people who would be very much not 
politically or socially conservative, very much at odds with certain kinds of ideologies. But I want to back up a little bit because my audience might be scratching their head. So you are transsexual um, and yet you're very critical of various forms of trans ideology. Can, can you un unpack that? How is your experience, would you say, different than what is maybe being popularized in the broader culture if that's the again if i'm not even wording it correctly please correct me that's okay it's, it's okay um I, I think that there i think there are probably three things that separate me from um most of the uh the trans activists out there that you see today um i, I think the first thing that separates me from them this is going to sound terribly arrogant is that i can think for myself um and i see what, what I see within trans activism, and I've, I've written quite a few things on this, mainly because it gave me a chance to quote liberally um, from um, On Liberty by John Stuart Mill, one of my favorite thinkers. Yeah. I, I'm a massive fan of, of John Stuart Mill. I know that some of his ideas on democracy and government weren't particularly good. Um, but um, as a thinker, I'm fascinated by his work and I'm fascinated by the work of Harriet Taylor as well, who, um, who, who is uh, who I've written about. Um, and I, I, the way I see what I found is that or what I have found is that a lot of the claims made by trans activists don't respond very well to sunlight. What I mean is if you look at some of the claims that they make, like, for example, uh, what was the claim that one in 12 trans people die before they're 30 or kill before they're 30? If you look at the etiology of that claim, it was some sort of throwaway comment on a blog that it became a meme and entered the mainstream. There's absolutely no truth to it. If you look at the message behind Transgender Day of Remembrance, the idea is that trans people are killed um, at a higher, far higher rate than anyone else. It doesn't stand up to daylight. You, you, you look at the trans, the trans women who are murdered um, in, in great numbers, and it is generally very patriarchal, very, very violent. Um, I don't mean that patriarchy is synonymous with violence, or, or do I? <laughs> but, um, but you look at the very patriarchal societies where you see a lot of trans people getting killed or a lot of trans women getting killed it will be countries like Mexico and Brazil and Ecuador and even Italy there is quite a, a high comparative death rate there and you look at the deaths in countries like Brazil and Mexico both great examples and the USA predominantly they are black or Hispanic and they, you see in the reports that are made that there'll be a group, of, you know, there'll be a group of seven shot, and you'll think, well, that looks like some sort of gangland killing. So you're thinking that's going to be drugs or prostitution, and the it, it's difficult to underestimate. Um, it's difficult to underestimate. Underestimate? I'm trying to say that. Underestimate. Or it's difficult. Yeah. No, it's difficult to overestimate how little in common the white middle class computer programmers in North America who are standing there campaigning for their trans rights or in the UK campaigning for their trans rights. It's difficult to overestimate how little these guys have in common with the poor black and Hispanic hmm. 
trans women out there who are actually being killed. And the way that these deaths have been co-opted primarily to benefit white middle class males is 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 actually properly repugnant wow so you're saying that there's there's something much more ethnic that needs to be considered when we're considering the the murder rate of typically trans women um biological men transition to female um but there's something much more ethnic at at work here than simply a, a conversation about trans persecution per se uh, these, these countries, well, uh, first of all, just to be clear, I'm, I, I don't think anyone can transition to female. You're either female or you're male. That's it. Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's it and, and forever it shall be. <laughs> um, but um, if you look at the murders that exist within these countries, the, 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 the culture in, for example, Mexico is, you know, Mexico, beautiful country, amazing culture, really macho culture, though. Yeah. And uh, very, you know, homosexuality is not universally celebrated. And the, there is a, there is a massive problem there with gangs and drugs and prostitution. Um, you look in America, in North America, um, there are indications that a lot of these trans women who were murdered in North America are murdered by people that they know, possibly boyfriends or partners. Uh, there are indications sometimes that you know that killed in a hotel room it would suggest some form of survival prostitution that you know that a lot of these deaths are occurring with people who are poor that there are you know if we're going to look at it as try and work out or what sort of um axes these are lying on it's it's going to be poverty it's prostitution it's drugs it's 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 organized crime and the 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 difficult lives these people are leading, their, their difficult lives and their often horrific and premature deaths are being used by a group of people who have absolutely nothing in common with mm. them to further their own political goals. Wow. Okay, so that's one area where you would dis differ from trans activist um, ideology. And again, that's kind of a broad brush statement, but we're dealing on, on you know, a broad level here what are some other areas that you would say as a transsexual person how you would differ from kind of the dominant narrative that we see on social media news outlets and so on oh um where, where else would i differ I, I don't think you can change sex okay yeah. I, I think um i think that the idea that you could change sex is a, is is a fantasy. Um, I think that it is indulged by a, a number of people, and quite some. Quite honestly, I think it's indulged by some people who can actually think for themselves. But they're thinking, well, you know, your sex is is simply down to your uh, genitalia. In fact, but it's it's not your, you know, your your life as a man or a woman is very much set. Yeah. from the moment that you come into the world and that you begin to navigate the world as being a man or a woman. As is uh, there's a quote from Simona de Beauvoir, which is very often misinterpreted, uh, often willfully misinterpreted, that um, one does not, what one is made, one does, does not, one is not born a woman, one becomes a woman, is the, the foundation of that, statement is that a woman, uh, being a woman, 
a woman becomes a woman through living in a world dominated by men. And it's through being a woman in a world dominated by men that this is that which makes the woman. She's not born like that. She is a product of living in a world that is dominated by men. Yeah, I'm familiar. I'm familiar with the quote. I have not read the original work, unfortunately. So that's interesting that that's the original context of that. I I am curious just from my audience, too, because you use the term transsexual, not transgender. I know a lot of people would be very offended if they identify as transgender and are called a transsexual. For some people, that's more of an offensive term. But you kind of go out of your way to say transsexual, not transgender. Can you and I, I've read enough of your style. <laughs> I, I kind of know where you're going to go, but can you, and this deals with sex and gender and just gender as a ontological concept as a whole. What, what, just, why do you prefer transsexual, not transgender as your own self-identity? Um, uh, I, I think, you know, even the word transsexual, I have a pro- I, I have yeah. issues with in the, um, uh, I, I can see that people would in, imply that it means that one can actually transcend the right. the boundaries of sex and that you you move from one sex to another. Um, I think in some ways you can the term can be read as if to say that you know one doesn't do that. One recognises the reality of the sex, but one attempts to cross that boundary. But it is as hard a boundary as you can possibly get, and you can't uh, you you know you can't transverse it. Um, I don't think that being trans is a, um, I, I don't think it is a state that we see necessarily in other creatures. I, you know, I, I have a friend of mine that I talk to quite a lot. And when we look at patterns of behavior and we're thinking about, um, you know, when we're analyzing patterns of behavior and thinking how, how these things play out in the real world, we think, well, how, how would this be replicated within the animal kingdom? How, how, for example, would we know whether or not a cow was transgender? Um, you know, it's it kind of it, it, you see you see where I'm going. That's a slight little troll there, because yeah. um, I have someone in mind when I'm saying that. <laughs> He'll be very flattered. Um, the the um, you know where is this type of behaviour uh, replicated within the animal kingdom? And the answer is it's not really, is it? Right. Yeah. No, it's not. It's, it's. I think. I think that this is a peculiarly human type of behaviour. Um, w- one of the things that's put out there is it's like, oh, look, we've got people. You know, that other societies have third genders. If you look at what these third genders were in societies that that had these had these um, societal constructs, which are always hierarchical, by the way. You know, it's not yeah. like they were that they were something that, you know, that suddenly the, these, these were very enlightened. It, it, they were a way of dealing in that society with homosexuality. Yeah. So the, the idea of these third genders being something that is progressive, that has suddenly been erased is, you know, it's, it's, it's not. It's something that existing in a society is a way of dealing with homosexuality, in particular dealing with the uh, dealing with the um, the need in a society to be able to accommodate uh, people who were homosexual and to you know to give them a way in which they could they could live their life mm-hmm. without challenging the equilibrium of that particular society. If you see what I'm getting at, mm-hmm. so yeah. really it, it's it's not 
a it's not a particularly great idea to have you know the, the, what what underlay these ideas of these third gens and whatever wasn't some sort of um, amazing um, uh, amazingly open-minded um, liberal attitude it was that they just needed a box to put people in that were gay well that, <laughs> yeah it's, for example i mean if for those who aren't maybe tracking you know in samoan culture and um in polynesia you know you have a the fa'afafini which is a term given to basically fe feminine gay men um it, it's it's not it's not a sexual like biological sex kind of category it's it's there's very little difference and I, my best friend one of my best friends is Samoan he grew up in Samoa and and the way he describes the fa'afafini it's not like this is a kind of a male female fa'afafini it's not like the, the, it's a ontologically on par category with male and female it would be very similar to just a feminine gay man who kind of lives that out you know um in, in many ways that a, a more stereotypically feminine gay man would in our society it's not it doesn't that the, that category at least in Samoa doesn't have the kind of categorical weight that some Westerners want to invest into it and then bring it back into kind of speaking into our culture as as I under I'm not a sociologist but that's kind of <laughs> I, I, I think it has limited value quite honestly but it, it sounds sounds to me like um you know what you're describing is essentially it's, it's just doing what societies do with uh, effeminate homosexual men and that is to try and kick them out of the man box yeah and i think therein lies a lot of the problems that um you know we see with we see with transgender people yeah. that a, a lot of the issues there uh, arise from the um you know from these these men being kicked out of the man box and it's down to women to deal with the fallout from it you know it's it's women's spaces they want it's women's women's places on short lists they want it's women's sports that they want to infiltrate it's uh you know the it, the whole thing it's like a um it, it it's like a an infiltration into in, into uh into women's culture that is is being done without any any form of respect for individual or group boundaries interesting you know you can yeah. say that these these you can say that these men identify as women and that here they go infiltrating women's culture so that they are you know that they're identifying as women but i think that you know these these cultural structures that women may have that exist because of because this is what the life of a woman entails these you know these men are not um that they are infiltrating those as as imposters and they may be identifying as women, but they sure as hell aren't identifying with women. They are not paying any heed to the uh, to, to the privacy or comfort or even showing the respect that women. You know, I think that males should should show women. We should we should respect each other. And I I just don't see any of that coming from what is being called the trans community or their allies. Um, you you've talked a bit about, and this is kind of underlying the point you're making here there's a a subtype of trans experience autogenophilia um that is as far as the research shows you know strictly from uh, an experience with biological males um and there's been oh there's a whole spectrum of views on aut autogenophilia all the way from it doesn't exist and you're a transphobe if you even say the word 
um, all the way to most biological males who identify as trans would have an autogenophilic experience. Um, can you unpack one for my audience what that what autogenophilia even is? And then two, I think you would be, as I've read your, I, I don't have a stat, but I think when I've heard you talk, you seem to be more on the side of I, a lot of people who identify as trans women seem to match this kind of subtype of trans experience. Would that be an accurate way to, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but would that, um, can you unpack autogenophilia for us and give us your perspectives on that? Sure. <laughs> Be very happy to. Um, Autogynophilia, I find it absolutely fascinating. Um, the The whole idea is it, it's um, it, it's become a area of I don't know what to call it sociology, what whatever they call it, sociology, sexology. Uh, human behavior it's human behavior isn't it anthropology i don't know um I, i've become absolutely fascinated by it and if, if i could find the money i'd love to do i've got i've got in mind a couple of ideas for some uh, i'd like to do some research work some graduate research work i'd love to do a phd in something i've got some great ideas um that have sprung to me from the work that i've done um the, the whole idea of autogynophilia is it's something that arises from attempts to categorize and explain the behavior of men who um, men who live as women and I use the term live as women as you know with some mental italics or scare quotes or something on there the I don't think it's possible for a man to live as a woman without resorting to some form of cultural stereotype. Um, now, if we go back to about 1918, the German um, researcher Magnus Hirschfeld, uh, he wrote a book called, uh, whose title I think loosely translates as, um, as, as transvestites, and he wrote about the observed behavior of men who enjoyed cross-dressing. And I can't remember if it was him. I think it was him. And he categorized cross-dressing behavior into around, what, maybe six categories. Um, and what's, what's quite interesting about this is that Hirschfeld was probably the first person to systematically examine, categorize, and attempt to come up with some sort of taxonomy around the, the human behavior of of cross-dressing or um i don't want to call it cross-sex behavior because it's mm -hmm. it, it's it's kind of not if it was cross-sex behavior then you know i'm sure more trans people would be um queuing up to um do the washing and wipe up all the shit off the floor that always seems to be get left to the women am i allowed to swear on your podcast you I'm are so yeah <laughs> you, you, you be you you be you yeah. <laughs> it wasn't gratuitous it was for emphasis and so Hirschfeld came up with this idea, and he found that a lot of men who participated in some form of cross-dressing um, did it with, and there, there was some sort of sexual arousal involved. And, uh, you know, Hirschfeld's work is, is seminal. It is the, it, it's, it's the work that really, really starts this idea off, although there is evidence that other cultures, I think it's referred to in the Hadith, um, for example, you know, the second book of, 
um, Mohammed, mm-hmm. uh, is that there is a reference there to there being two types of cross-sex behaviour in males, one from um, feminine homosexuals and one from um, heterosexuals who were, you know, were rather less feminine. Um, and the oh, another interesting thing about Hirschfeld is you'll often see a lot of transgender activists complaining about how awful it was that Hirschfeld's library of sexology was destroyed by the Nazis, the Hirschfeld Institute was destroyed, and all of this original work, one of the first person the first person to ever research transgender women, his work was destroyed by the Nazis. Um, if they actually read his work, <laughs> they, they, wouldn't be, they wouldn't be so happy about it because, of course, you know, Hitchfeld wrote about this trans behaviour that's essentially been transvestites and recognised that behind the behaviour of a lot of men, there was a sexual element involved with this, with this cross-dressing and, this, this, um, and what we now see is this persona that um, that the the trans person adopts or the, tra- the trans male adopts mm-hmm. and this this type of behavior seems to be um, you know we, we can categorize it for um, for males and if we fast forward to the 60s and the 70s a Canadian researcher by the name of Ray Blanchard was looking at um, <clears throat> was looking at um, the behavior of um, cross-dressers and transsexuals and what he was attempting to do was to come across what he needed was a word and he needed a word to differentiate between um, younger feminine gay men who were um, exclusively attracted to members of the opposite sex who seemed to form one cohort of transsexuals and a the second group of men who were not feminine who were unremarkably masculine and were, were heterosexual, mm-hmm. and what he found was that the he, he, you, he what he found was that he could delineate the, um, the the population of males who transitioned to women according to two types that was down an axis of their sexual orientation. Mm-hmm. So essentially, you had a bunch of gay men becoming gay men's idea of what a woman is, and then you had a bunch of straight men becoming a straight man's idea about what a woman was. And what, what, what he'd found is that the delineation was on sexual orientation, that you had a straight cross-dresser or a transvestite who became a transsexual, and then you had a homosexual uh, transvestite or, um, tra- who became a transsexual. Mm-hmm. And that the, the two groups of people had generally, there was some overlap, mm-hmm. um, the two groups of people had a different had different sexual histories. One was homosexual, almost exclusively homosexual, um, and one was um, heterosexual with a history of erotic cross-dressing. And what got Blanchard in, and his colleagues, um, J. Michael Bailey and mm-hmm. anyone else who has touched this um, this fascinating academic uh, um, subject which has become the um, which has become the internet debating yeah. um, guy you know dumpster fire quite literally <laughs> um, the uh, what what may it's made a lot of trans people unhappy is that w- what it does is it it, it recognizes that behind the uh, that, that you're that the straight crossdresser has a 
um, is, is more likely to have a uh, is more likely to have a history of um, self-arousing mm-hmm. uh, eroticization when you know when presenting oneself as a woman in the only way that a man can ever present as a woman to themselves, which is a man being a man's idea of what it is to be a woman, if you get me. Yeah. So the whole idea behind this is that there is, the, in summary, we have a delineation between two types of male transsexual. By male transsexual, I mean men who claim to be women. You have the first type who are homosexual and they are feminine and they um, they, they become um, they become a very feminine type of transsexual and then you have the um, heterosexual transsexual or the non-homosexual transsexual should I say because it that itself covers a whole um, whole whole bunch of different sexual orientations which appear to have at some point um, demonstrated a, a form you know this 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 um, self arousal this eroticization um, at some point within their history now the just as this idea is not very well understood the the way that this this early interest because it's it's usually is based upon an early interest in cross-dressing the way that this turns into a adult transsexual is not very well understood Mm. it's it's not like this person has fetish and is walking around continually you know in in a state of um a a hyper excited state um of of arousal all the time the the way that the the way that the autogonophile um almost comes to terms to terms with this um the site of their personality is is being compared by Anne Lawrence who wrote an amazing essay called becoming what we love mm. which which contextualized this idea of the autogynophilic transsexual becoming this, um, you know, becoming this person, becoming essentially becoming what they love, and contextualise it as being a um, a romance that the man has with themselves, that they become the woman that they love. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Anne Lawrence. Her book, um, uh, Men Trapped in men's bodies bodies. which is very i mean unknown largely except the people who are really deep into this conversation but ann lawrence is a medical researcher md phd Mm. and identifies as a transsexual who experiences autogonophilia so there's there's no there's there's no real argument you can make but i mean that book she surveyed tons of people who very much match blanchard's description of this um i think I, i I appreciate Anne Lawrence's work because she she gives a lot of nuance to it. Because I, I think some of the criticism, mm. at least of Blanchard's earlier um, presentation of this, as I, as I understand this, is it was too compartmentalized, too clean, too neat. You know, this category, that category. I, I don't know if that's even a fair representation of what he actually said. But what Anne Lawrence does is she shows a lot of nuance, the complexity, and and I it. it and and I'm going to ask a question here in a second, but <laughs> I got to get all this background story, but um, you know, there, there's, so, there's some people, you know, I'll, I'll mention it in a blog or writing. I'll, I'll always get people to say, that's an offensive. Like, I can't believe you even mentioned that. Like that's controversial. <laughs> How could you even, I'm like, first of all, the the research is pretty sound. Like the, I'm, I'm not saying all, I'm not saying most, I'm not, I don't know the percentage of, 
uh, trans identifying males who have this experience. I really don't know, but there's a decent amount. And whenever I do talk about it, I I've got several friends that have come out to me and said, who aren't even in the LGBT category at all, but they say, Oh my (laughs) gosh, there's a name for that because I've wrestled with that, you know, um, lots of people. So I think this experience, first of all, does exist. (laughs) Um, second of all, I think it's unhelpful to, pretend like it doesn't. Um, so I guess my, my question to you is why, why is there such an allergic reaction to autogenophilia and such a resistance to it as a concept? Is it because it kind of can, there's a lot of shame maybe involved that overly fetishize, fetishizes the experience? I mean, or what, what's the, why, why, why do some people want to deny that it exists? Uh, I, I think there are several reasons. I think, first of all, um, if we can recognize that the truth sets people free, we also have to recognize that, first of all, it makes them very, very angry. Hmm. Hmm. And I can see it being very difficult for people who have... So we have to remember that the trans community, to, to the trans community, having an open and honest discussion about autogynophilia is anathema. It is, it is not something that you do unless you can run very, very quickly from the rocks that they're going to throw at you. Huh. Because it is, it is something that is, um, it, it's, it's something that they have mandated out of their, out of the discussion within their groups. And it's something that they attempt to discredit very unsuccessfully, bearing in mind that the internet and Twitter in particular is awash with extremely good examples of every single behavior that Blanchard's theory predicts for transsexuals. You, you, you know, you look at what Blanchard's, the predictions that the theory makes, and like all great theories, it's testable. You can see the prediction that it's, predictions that it makes about the behavior of the, the people that that are um, that, that you see out there. I mean, you know, there, there was one I remember a few years ago. Um, someone, one of the a, a quite well-known trans activists, was um, waxing lyrical on Twitter about how he'd always been a, a lesbian, but now was um, fantasizing about men. But was talking about men as being these these faceless personality-less things. They were fantasizing about being with a man, but it, was, it, it wasn't it was a complete man. They, they, they were faceless. There was, there was nothing to them. They were, they were fantasizing of the idea of being with a man, but not of being with a man. Hmm. You see where I'm going yeah. with that? Now, if you've read Men's Traps in Men's Bodies, that is exactly yeah. what Anne Lawrence talks about, absolutely word for word. One of the fantasies is that, you know, that some of these men who are having these types of fantasies, these these types of homosexual fantasies, they're having these fantasies and the, the men that they're fantasizing about, they're faceless. They're not they're not men. They are. Oh, what's the word I would use for it? They are almost like they're like dummies. Yeah. Um, you look at, I mean, you know, I did. a I wrote a piece a few years ago on. Um, on pornography and autogynophilia. I just looked, at, this was before I discovered the writing of Andrea Chu, how I never saw Andrea Chu's writing before researching this article is beyond me. 
um, where I looked at the influence of pornography on uh, trans people who transitioned. And you could see there that there was a fixation that they were developing through watching pornography, and they were literally becoming exactly what it was that they love. Mm. It was, it's, you know, the, the, there is so much evidence out there. Now, on the most basic level, it said that the autogynophile is someone who has a, uh, a paraphilia, and the paraphilia gets a bit out of hand and takes a life over. And I think that there is, a, there is merit in that description as the, the autogynophilic behavior, the autogynophile's behavior causes an enormous amount of destruction to their relationships, the people around them. Mm. Again, this is something that has utterly failed to go acknowledged. And when I, when I came onto the internet and started talking about this about six or seven years ago, saying, you know, you, you're out there, you're, you're celebrating this and no one, you, you know, you're not, you're not acknowledging that, <laughs> that you have a, you know, that there are a vast number of, of children and, and female partners and also male partners mm-hmm. of these men who are doing this, who are, who have essentially become the collateral damage for these mm-hmm. men to go up and, and live their lives. But like you say, that the, 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 the whole thing is a lot more nuanced than it's simply being a fetish. Yeah. And it is, you know, it, it, it is the evolution within these, these men of this idea of themselves as a woman in this long term, deep, deeply emotional relationship. I mean, you've read Becoming What They Love. I mean, the way that Anne Lawrence discusses it, yeah. it's like this, you know, as uh, the, the, um, the teenage boy uh, has these fantasies and it becomes a very intense erotic behavior mm-hmm. that over time, you know, just like a heterosexual relationship, it will peter out mm-hmm. and it will, you know, it, it will come back years later, but it, and then it will enter some sort of comfortable middle age with, mm-hmm. with little or no sexual involvement. It's almost like a pattern of a heterosexual relationship. Um, yeah. See, the, the whole subject is absolutely fascinating. It is. That to, um, and the way you see it there, you can see exactly how it is that, that this, you know, the, the predictions that Blanchard makes, the, the contextualization that Anne Lawrence gives it is, it's amazing. It's so precise, you know, considering this is a, it, this is some sort of analysis of behavior, some sort of anthropology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's, it's it's very scientific in the way that it allows you to examine the behaviors and it's it's quite amazing that the predictions that you know the predictions that it makes that turn out that, that you know that, that turn out and you can say well you know that's exactly exactly what i would have expected mm-hmm. um and i think you know one of the issues behind it is of course that um what what the trans community have done is they've gone out of the way to make you know, they're going out the way at the moment to make the reality of biological sex unutterable, but they've gone out of their way to prevent people from talking about the reality of what it is for, for most, most transsexuals to be transsexual. And, and by extension, I'd say, I'd say what we're seeing as transgender is essentially the, the, um, the public acceptable face that, that we are dealing with a a a, um, a destigmatization. Well, it's not even a destigmatization. It is a cultural, uh, growing cultural acceptance of transvestism that we're seeing. But the way that it's being accommodated in society is that we are we are not 
looking at the reality of the situation and saying that these are men who cross-dressed because at some point they would have had some sort of erotic interest in it. And these, you know, what we're seeing now with a lot of these these younger people that we see who emerge on the internet who are obsessed with anime and obsessed with anime porn and they you know they've they've, they've got their they've got their implausibly short skirts and and that their um you know their very revealing outfits on and whatnot and uh it's a very sexually aggressive movement and what we're being told is not that these this is you know we're not being we're not taking the context of the permissive society to its logical conclusion and say, saying um, this is a fetish. You know, if people are going to indulge in this, then let them indulge in it in the you know in their own homes as long as it causes them no harm or whatever like that. What's actually happening here is that we're being told that this this behaviour is is actually making these these men women, and that by the corollary of that is that. Being a woman is someone who is, you know, is is that prop that exists in society for sexual excitement and sexual mm. uh, gratification. It's it's it's, it's dehumanising, and what what we're actually getting out there is a a group of men who are confusing what it is to feel sexy with feeling like a woman because to them. Being a woman is all about feeling sexy. Mm. Wow. Does that answer your question? Yeah. <laughs> and, and and more so. I just I uh, yeah, so many different directions we can go. I, it does seem you know the um, uh, regressive or illiberal is how some classical liberals would describe some of the ideas, and it does kind of come up mm. in this conversation when it seems like these misogynistic stereotypes of what it means to be female are being resurrected or dust being resurrected dusted off and propped up by some of the underlying ideological um commitments in again among some for lack of better terms trans activists or or even people who would be maybe maybe even fit the um who would act on an autogenophiliac mm. um type of desire and I, and again I, i'm thinking of friends who they would say, you know, they struggle with this. This is something that they see they they, they're, you know, they, they wrestle with it. And I, I very much empathize with their struggle and, and long conversations. And, you know, the ones I'm a few that I'm thinking of are married, you know, and they're trying to be faithful to their wife. And there's just, there's just struggle. And, and they have a faith commitment too. So that adds a whole nother morality and a faith mm. context where there's heightened shame and so on and so forth. So I'm very, I have a lot of empathy when I talk about, autogenophilia but then when i see people try to ignore it I, I that's when i'm like well that's not that doesn't to pretend like it doesn't exist doesn't actually help people work through this and even in reading lawrence's work it's like so many people to testimonies saying thank you for giving me a space to talk about now i can understand myself better you know whether they're in a faith context or not you know so i think it's just unfortunate when a piece of the human experience is ignored for the sake of trying to sanitize maybe a, 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 a greater movement. Um, I do want to talk about trans children um, and I'm concerned about your time. How, how are you doing on? <laughs> no, it's, it's all, it's all, it's all good. I'll, I'll just respond to what you're saying. Yeah. There. I think that the, I think that the, um, the trans movement, I, th I don't think it's making very many friends. And I think that there will be, 
Uh, we're seeing quite a lot of pushback in this country. I think the pushback is going to negatively affect trans people. I think that some of the pushback is definitely impacting upon uh, upon particularly gay men. Um, I think by extension, it's likely to affect um, le lesbianism and lesbians groups as, as well. But it, to, to me, at the moment, the main um, pushback seems to be affecting uh, you know, get gay men's culture. Um, the I think the, the the main problem with the uh, you know with with what trans people are telling people that they have to accept is that it's it's not based upon reality, and I don't think that that is something that the public is going to buy, and I don't think it's sustainable. Mm. Um, and I think that I think that fundamentally the way that the trans rights movement, if that's what we want to call it. I, th I think fundamentally the way that these ideas are being pushed, it's it, it's coercive and it has to be coercive because it is not something that is based upon reality. For example, uh, if we, you know, a comparison that is made, you see many people will say, well, you know, um, a trans women are just like any other type of women, like, oh, uh, black women or disabled women. Well, um, black women are still women you know, they, they are the, you know, they, 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 they are the, um, they are black human beings who have um, reproductive systems, female reproductive systems, and are responsible for birthing 100% of the, uh, you, you know, the, the population. And the, um, you know, if we, if we look at the language that's being used around it, you know, they've tried very hard to co-opt the yeah. the language and the tactics of the black civil rights movement. But if you look at the black civil rights movement, even the gay liberation movement, the black civil rights movement, the idea was that black people should have the same rights, the same um, the, the, the same um, equality of opportunity as as white people should. Not that black people should be called white, mm -hmm. or that gay people said, well, you know, we want the same opportunities that heterosexuals have. Uh, but the gay community did not say, but we want to be called heterosexual. Yeah, no, that's, yeah, that's super helpful. And I, um, so, so like there's certain, there's certain, differences in reality in some of these different civil rights movements for instance yeah the, the the civil rights movements in the 50s and 60s and then even the um mm. the the movement towards marriage equality um you know to be attracted to the same sex to be gay is to be gay like that that's there's no, just nothing in reality that's being that's untrue there but once it, it, i'm kind of like asking for feedback here once a male says, I want to be recognized as a female, on one hand, socially, just from a political perspective, it's kind of like, oh, it's a free country. You can say whatever you want. But um, to, to, to demand that people sign off on the same reality claim, that, that is a question. I'm trying to be neutral here. That, that is a questionable no, no, reality it's, it's, I think claim. Whereas if a gay man says, I'm yeah. attracted to men, that's not a questionable. That's just true, a true statement. Um, but those yeah, they're, they're you, very you different see, in kind. Th this brings a whole load of problems to the yard. Um, the, the the kickback against uh, the, the against trans activism in the gay community and the lesbian community is quite well documented. 
uh, I've written about this idea of a cotton ceiling. You've probably read my mm-hmm. um, my my piece, which um, was like probably the best title I've ever come up with in my entire life of uh, yes, building it... the cotton ceiling of the cultural war on lesbians and women. Um, and it was like I was asked to do this piece by Arthur Ellen two years ago, and uh, two or three years ago. I got the call and I had a 20 minute journey home and between having the call to do it and, and getting home, I knew exactly what I wanted to say, sat down at my desk for 20 minutes and that was it, 3,000 words, bang. Mm. I knew exactly what I wanted to say and how to say it and I've been involved in this damn thing for so long that it was so super easy for me to remember, or, you know, I knew who all the culprits were. I, you know, if I needed to think of, right, you know, um, need a man pretending to be a woman going into a LGBT group and telling women that they, telling lesbians that they should suck dick because it's on a woman, aha, that's Morgan Page. Or um, I need to know a porn star who is shaming a female lesbian, um, lesbians are female, a lesbian porn star for not wanting to be uh, not wanting to cast him opposite her. I can go to uh, Chelsea Poe and the um, the the um, very um, robust and um, very compassionate fight back that the porn lesbian porn actor Lily Cade um, did against uh, Poe's rather rather rapey attempts to get himself cast um, in a lesbian porn movie, porn movie. Um, and it was just such an easy thing to write. But I think you know I think the problem is that if you if you look at the trans rights movement what that they are doing they're not asking people of anything they are telling people and they are telling people with the threat of cancellation of economic loss of contacting their friends of ostracizing them even physical violence we've seen physical violence in this country mm-hmm. um we've, we've seen threats there uh, we've seen rape threats and death threats you know i've done talks in places and the, the, the we where, where um the organizers have had people shut down the venues the 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 people have turned up to protest outside they've threatened people start they in one event they started a fight and um, a woman was beaten it's Mm. it's it's beaten by a man that was maria Maria mcclacken was beaten by a man you know it's like given this situation which you'd ordinarily think ordinarily think that it's it's reached such a a terrible state of affairs where a woman gets beaten up in Hyde Park. Mm-hmm. To me, the natural response to that would be, let's get everyone together around the table and say, right, it's gone too far. We must work together on this. Let this never, ever, ever happen again. Mm-hmm. But what happened? LGBT organizations doubled down. Stone, the response by Stonewall was absolutely pathetic it was too little too sorry it's cat it was too little too little too late uh, and you know it talked about you know pe- people should people should do this and people should do that it's like showed absolutely no community leadership it, and i thought it was i thought it was ruth hunt's the nadir of ruth hunt's utterly dire stewardship of stonewall that that what what Ruth Hunt has done to Stonewall is just it's just beyond the pale, and but she's got her thirteen pieces of silver in the House of Lords. There you go, biblical reference. You see, <laughs> <laughs> you do go to church. I see it. All right, <laughs> and you got the number thirty pieces of silver. Good job. Um, 
Yeah, gosh, I mean, I um, can can I, I and and just if you like, no, I don't want to go. That's fine. I, I'm still curious about how your own personal experience fits into this. My my assumption, because I I I know a few other people who would be identify as tra- trans transsexual, and when the, the way they would describe it is, look, I am always my sex. I have this thing that psychologists call gender dysphoria, and the best way to relieve this and to be happy was to transition. But I. I still, I don't deny my biological sex. It's just, you know, um, or even Blair White. I don't know if you know Blair White. You know, she's like, look, I'm biologically male. I'm not going to deny that. I just got, in her words, you know, screwed by nature. And oh, she used a different phrase, but I mean, and it is what it is. I'm happy now. But to make a whole, to create a whole new kind of maybe ideology out of this, I think is is what she would say is wrong, wrong headed. Is that, is that, does that resonate with you? How, how would you describe your personal experience vis-a-vis the some of the transgender claims trans the larger trans ideological claims i i don't really don't really understand the question um i i don't really know what you're asking there um what i would say is that i think um i think the best way to live a life the best way to get as much as you can out of life is to live authentically um i like um, I like being, you know, I like being a fun kind of individual. I like um, be, being someone who enjoys some of the the um, delicious darker music out there. I, I like to, you know, wear the black um, cardiac shirt um, and, uh, you, you know, I walk around with, you know, walk around looking like something from the 1980s, you know, as I often say, you know, dressed as a cake. Um, but you know, it's it's just fun. It doesn't change who I am, and I think I think the um, I think it's I think living life authentically, it, you know, is is very important. I've seen, you know, I've, I've I've peeked into conversations on Twitter before where I've seen trans people who've not been able to go to the door to pick up a pizza because they've not had mascara and high heels on. I don't think that's living an authentic life. That's yeah. that's just fucking ridiculous. <laughs> Sorry. Let, let, let me let me no you're fine <laughs> let, let me re- reword my question in a simple way like why did you transition why do you identify as transsexual oh gosh um the uh, i i have i've unpacked so many of these things now i think that most of the words that i would use to to explain why i transitioned and why I went through what I went through. Each would come with so many caveats. Yeah, that's. Um, I say I wouldn't say that I bought into transgender ideology as it exists now. Uh, I certainly became obsessed with the idea that I was transsexual, and I went through everything that I could possibly do to um, a- achieve what transsexual meant to me which is what transsexual used to mean it would be someone that you would you know you would have a fair amount of counseling and you would unpack your behavior and your um your, your attitudes to life and you get your mental health in order and then you would transition and then you would you know attempt to live this life and assimilate and just you know just get on with things without being a dick really um and the um, I mean the, I and and you know very much that's 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 what I did, and it was a way of uh, eliminating 
uh, a number of conflicts and certainly a, a huge amount of alienation that I felt with um, with myself and between myself and the outside world. Yeah. Um, but you know, I'm not the same person yeah. as I was then. I, I think we all evolve and we grow as human beings, and I think with a lot of hindsight it's you know my, my my life has been informed by this journey that I've been on and you know I like to be honest with myself and yeah. I do quite a lot of thinking and I like to you know like I say be authentic um, and I you know I would question so many of the reasons why I did what I did and I think that a lot of trans people would hmm. um, and I think that um, associated with 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 trans, I think that what a lot of people who are transitioning are doing at the moment is they are going through going through some quite large changes in their life. Even this whole idea of adopting this social role of being someone who is the opposite sex, which of course doesn't really work, it's, they become a parody. Um, even, that in itself is, is an absolutely huge deal and it's very damaging. And a lot of people are going through these this, these processes and making these decisions and causing a huge amount of difficulty for themselves and their loved ones, in particular their, their wives and their children. And they're doing this without ever, ever achieving any understanding of why they feel about themselves the way that they do. I'm sorry. And I'm I think I'm that sorry. that is tragic. I'm fiddling around here. My computer, I just noticed, is about to die. So I need to. Um... Oh. <laughs> and this is. <clears throat> That's okay. And whatever you... I'm doing here is not working. So let me uh, give me. Uh, maybe, you best, maybe you better stop praying. <laughs> yeah, can you? Well, you're, you're the <laughs> churchgoer. <laughs> you're the churchgoer. Maybe. Uh, <laughs> <you> can... <laughs> um, well, there we are. I, I did. Um... In my first year at university, I studied philosophy um, as well as the main modules that I was doing. I, I, did, um, I did a philosophy course that was on uh, politics and ethics, uh, logic, uh, metaphysics, uh, philosophy of religion, and something else which escapes me, I'll remember. And it was amazing. The whole, I found the whole thing absolutely fascinating. Um, I, I discovered the writing of Soren Kierkegaard, whose work I absolutely adore. Interesting. I'm going I'm to look over here now because I changed screens. I, I don't know if this worked or not. So if it deletes. Yeah, I, I can see you. Um, well, I mean, we, we've gone over an hour, so maybe we can wrap it up. Um, I, we didn't get to trans kids. Um, There's no such thing as a, cat, a trans kid. A trans kid is the, the um, equivalent of the vegan cat. It's not something that kids or cats do voluntarily <laughs> there is because okay so i'm gonna get some emails i'll direct them to you on that um sure, what you're getting you, you would acknowledge that there are children who are male or female who experience what psychologists now call gender dysphoria uh, i would say define gender dysphoria hmm. can you define and, yeah and, and, and also, um, also, I would suggest that what these, the boys and these girls are feeling is very different to what we have historically, uh, what, what may have historically been categorized as gender dysphoria. I mean, gender dysphoria is 
uh, to, my, to my mind, my own experience, it's a combination of, uh, of depression and obsessive behavior and uh, a bunch of other anxieties as well. And it's, you know, it's something that you need to, it's something that the person needs to work through. It's not symptomatic that you've magically been born the wrong sex. Right. It's just that your sex becomes a matter of fixation. So, I mean, so gender dysphoria, I'm going off the cuff here. I mean, some high level of distress somebody feels, experiences with regard to their biological sex. Now that ideology of it, the cause of it, the roots of it, you know, that's a whole, that's a different debate. <laughs> um, but obviously some people do experience that distress. Now you're saying hmm. that could be often is maybe intertwined with several other mental health. I, issues? I don't, I don't think I've, I've, I've said a number of times that my belief is that what we call gender dysphoria is not itself a discrete condition that gender dysphoria is, a constellation of a number of different symptoms and I think that what happens is that the individual becomes fixated upon this this idea of changing their sex as being a way that they will be able to alleviate and come out the other side from the issues that they face if that's um, and I was gonna say if that's true then you would be very much for the idea of gender dysphoria being addressed through psychotherapy. I mean, psychological means because that's precisely what the issue is, not rushing mm -hmm. kids to physically transition. Deal, deal with I, the mental health issues first and that. I, I agree. I totally agree. The uh, mental health issues are um, seem to always be the Cinderella of any health service that you look at and I think uh, mental health care provision is inadequate in this country I think it is in pretty much every single country and I think that the I, I think that mental health care is absolutely necessary um, I think that any therapy that people are having who are any people who are claiming to be trans that the therapy that they're having should not be about facilitating transition it should be helping them to come to terms with who and what they are and would you still say, say somebody experiences early onset gender dysphoria? I've got friends from the time they were three years old, just so severe. And mm. let's, just, let's just say they do go through all the mental health, you know, means of addressing it. And they, they do take care of other issues or whatever. Um, and say they turn into adults, you know, and they're still very severely gender dysphoric. Would you say in that case, transitioning might be the best way to finally relieve as a last resort maybe th th their dysphoria or <clears throat> I think you're begging the question there because I think that we are pre you're presupposing that if there is a even if there is a adequate and well-researched protocol as to how we resolve these internal conflicts that people may have, um, then there will always be people that will still want to do it. And I'm not sure that that's the case. Um, you know, I mentioned to you, excuse me, <coughs> I mentioned to you before a piece that I've done on pornography and autogynophilia. If, um, if you have any wealthy listeners who would like to fund me doing a PhD, I would love to look at the influence of 
uh, pornography on on um, the outbreak of transgenderism that we see. And, you, you know, you look at the works mm. of, um, you know, some fairly prominent writers like Julia Serrano or Sam Rydell or Andrea Chu. And the, the you, you know, within their writing, it's, it's there. Sissy porn, uh, Japanese cartoon porn. Mm. It's, 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 all, it's all about the pornography. And, you know, I... Being, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm no prude, but I, I think pornography is dehumanizing. I think, you know, I think um, sexual relationships between consenting, loving human beings is is, is all well and good. And, um, you know, I, I think that, you know, I, I think consenting meaningless sex is, you know, is pretty much okay as well. Um, you know, it, 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 you know, it's not, it's not, not abusive, but, um, uh, I, I think that I think pornography is a uh, you know I think pornography is is, is abusive. It's it's mm. very very you know although it, it's become acceptable after the you know after this 70s sexual liberation and whatever and um, you, you know um, it's 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 not actually that countercultural. In fact, it's incredibly conservative. Pornography sells itself as being transgressive. But actually, it's not transgressive. It's incredibly conservative. What it does, it's all about men dominating women, and it's all about exploiting men dominating women, and and making money from men dominating women, mm-hmm. and dehumanising women, and keeping women down. Um, you know, even even in gay pornography, you, you, you can see you can see a power vector. Um, the with um, with with men's you know within within the the gay um, you know within, within the gay scene you see that there is a lot of um, femi- that there's no real place for um, for feminine gay men hmm. it's it, it's a it, it's such a shame that that the that the feminine gay man is not given the, the support within the gay scene that I think that perhaps. That, that that gay man could be, and I think that you know that, that that might have some some bearing on what we what we see within the trans scene. But what concerns me a lot is the influence on pornography, and you only have to see the way that pornography affects the mannerisms, the clothes, and the you know even the, even the names that a lot of these people are. You, you know, when you've got a, a 50 year old, 54 year old, 20 stone man who's transitioning and call himself things like Angel Crystal, it's like you know. Do me a favor, mate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Well, so yeah, that, that's a good place to, I think, cut it off. Our audience um, has a lot to think about, and we've only scratched the surface. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I, yeah, my mind was just kind of spinning when when you were connecting the dots between pornography and, I mean, lots of things going on in our culture today. I've talked to mental health counselors that say. You know, we deal with so many different um, unwanted sexual desires in the last 10 years, where in the past that was always linked to sexual trauma, some abusive situation. But now we're seeing people with no past of sexual trauma coming in with the same kinds of unwanted sexual behavior or desires, and they're linking it to pornography. And I think only time will tell the, the societal ramifications of widespread um internet porn which as you said or i'll say it resonates with what you're saying almost always leads to violence towards women and children which is profoundly 
regressive Ooh. Miranda thank you I can't thank you enough for coming on the show I mean I, I don't know That's how many no Christian podcasts you've been a guest on <laughs> uh, I did some videos with um, a, um, someone I know from America called Raya Jones who is um, a, is a pastor now I believe oh, right. and uh, we, we had a lot of fun talking about stuff I'm going to leave you with some um, some uh, some last words yes, in yes, the, yes. go for it um, the, the 1860s John Stuart Mill who whose work I've mentioned before um he, he wrote a, uh, an essay called The Subjection of Women, which he, he, he finished with the assistance of Helen Taylor, who was the daughter of Harriet Taylor, who, who, who was his, his wife. Um, Harriet had died in, um, in, in France, um, I think about 20 years previously. And The Subjection of Women was written based upon an essay by... So my cats are being antsy. Um, an essay by Harriet Taylor called The Enfranchisement of Women. Um, and Mill delayed the publication of The Subjection of Women until he knew that he was dying because the attitudes that he was expressing in there about the idea that um, the only thing that prevents women from being doctors and teachers and map readers is because society says that women can't be teachers and doctors and map readers. Um, this idea ran so strongly against the um the ethos of the 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 european court at that time by the court i mean you know society at that time that you know, he was concerned about the kickback and he, he essentially released the essay only when he realized that he was dying so he didn't really care what people thought <laughs> and it, it just you, you know there you go a true political radical who even then recognize that the most transgressive thing that you can actually do is to stick up for women and now those of us who are who, who are who, who are standing for women in this ground those of the women and the men and the trans people who stand this ground for women and say that this movement is is toxic and it's damaging and what it's doing is wrong that we are the ones who are truly transgressive and it is it's it is the um it, it is the socially conservative um, people, the, the socially conservative groups, the trans groups, who, who are so rigidly defined in what their own identity allows them to be, that are fighting against those of us who, yet again, say that the most radical thing that you can do in, as a man is to respect women. Wow. We should close in prayer, Miranda. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you well, so much. Uh, you've given us a lot to think you. about, and... Um, yeah, this is going to be. I didn't tell you this, but I'm I'm actually having a whole spectrum of different trans voices um, on uh, the show for a for a kind of a series of uh, conversations. And um, yeah, thank you so much for playing a, a, if I can say, a very unique role in this broader conversation. Thank you. I'm. I'm I hope I brought some. I hope I brought some light to the conversation. That's that's the most important thing to me. Mm, that's great. That's great. Light and darkness. Another spiritual metaphor. Very yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> All right. God more, bless. Light, less, more light, less heat. <laughs> <laughs> Take care, Miranda.